You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, March 9th reading of The Gazette. My name is Mary Ann. Today we will read the following main articles. Red Flag Expansion Clears Hurdle by Marianne Goodland. $7 million set aside to fight opioid addiction by Brooke Nevins. Controversial Kids Survey Could See Change in District 11 Schools by Debbie Kelly. Business, military, politicians urge Biden not to move Space Command by Hannah Metzger. And we'll be following up with miscellaneous articles. Red Flag Expansion Clears Hurdle. Key Senate Committees approves two two bills to curb gun violence after all-day hearing by Mary Ann Goodland. Two measures supporters say will rein in gun violence won party-line approval by a Senate panel after an all-day hearing that stretched late into the evening. A third measure, which is being heard as of press time, is also expected to sail through. The first measure, Senate Bill 170, seeks to strengthen the state's extreme risk protection order, more popularly known as the Red Flag Law, by allowing district attorneys, educators, and health professionals, including mental health providers, to seek that intervention from the court. Under the law, first adopted in 2019, only law enforcement or a family member can seek the order to remove firearms from a person who is considered a danger to themselves or others. In 2020, the law's first full year, 109 orders were filed, of which 61 were granted on a temporary basis and 49 for an entire year, according to a study published in 2021 by the journal Injury Epidemiology. An analysis this year by Colorado Public Radio says 40 out of 64 counties have never seen an ERPO petition. Of the cases, more than half were filed by the Denver Police Department, while El Paso County's Sheriff's Office had never sought an ERPO petition. Then-El Paso Sheriff Bill Elder had openly opposed the law during legislative hearings, and Joe Roybal, the new sheriff, has said he will prioritize defending the Second Amendment. Neither has stated directly, though, that they would refuse to enforce the red flag law. Elder at first said deputies would not file ERPO petitions, but would carry out any judicial order mandating weapons confiscation. Later, he said his office would only file the petitions at the request of family members or under exigent circumstances. After the Club Q shooting in November, allegedly committed by a man who was already known to the El Paso County Sheriff's Office for making bomb threats the year before, 
Democratic lawmakers crafted legislation to add groups of people to the list who can seek a red flag order. Wednesday's hearing drew people to the state capitol who shared stories of the heartbreak they've suffered from gun violence and who argued that expanding the ERPO would save lives. Opponents offered counter-arguments, claiming the 2019 law is unconstitutional and its successor would be too. A challenge to the law from Republican lawmakers, based on a technicality on how it was reviewed by the State House is pending before the state Supreme Court. Senator Tom Sullivan, a Democrat from Centennial, one of the bill's sponsors, told the committee that the pro-gun activist promised to turn the building into a circus. My favorite part of any circus was when the clowns all come out of the little car, Sullivan said. So I'm going to go outside and see if that little car is out there. Among those who testified was a former legislative aide, Benjamin Teven, who recounted how he found his mother dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound last August. The most profound regret of my life is not seeking an ERPO, he said. Teven served as an aide to Republican Senators Barry List, Larry Liston and Mark Baisley when both served in the House. They are now members of the Senate, State, Veterans, and Military Affairs Committee, which heard the bill and both voted against it. Royval, El Paso's sheriff, told the committee that the ERPO law would have not stopped the Club Q shooting because it would not have applied to the weapons used by the shooter. Authorities had seized the weapons the suspect had when the bomb threat took place under a search warrant tied to a protective order, and at the time of the shooting, the sheriff's department still had those weapons. That did not prevent the shooter from obtaining or possessing weapons illegally, Roy Ball said. The second legislation, Senate Bill 168, seeks to allow gun victims to sue firearms manufacturers and gun dealers. The bill also establishes a cause of action to ensure victims or the Attorney General acting on their behalf can seek fair compensation in court if they could prove they were harmed as a result of the gun industry member knowingly violating responsible conduct. It repeals state law that prevents gun victims from having their day in court, according to co-sponsor Senator Jaquez Lewis a Democrat from Longmont. The bill's third part, co-sponsor Senator Chris Colker, a Democrat from Centennial, said it establishes the firearms industry standard of conduct and requires industry members to take modest, reasonable precautions to prevent gun trafficking in other preventable harms. He added the measure is intended to fit within the exceptions allowed under the under the 2005 Federal Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which generally protects firearms manufacturers from liability. It is time to treat the firearm industry and other businesses equally, Colker said. Jaquez Lewis said Colorado is one of three states, along with Indiana and Arkansas, with extreme anti-victim laws that include a punitive 
provision that can bankrupt the gun violence victim and their families if they take the bad actors in the gun industry to civil court. That's what happened to the parents of Jessica Gowie, who was one of the victims of the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012. The dealer that sold the gunman thousands of, runs of rounds of ammunition, large capacity magazines, and body armor failed to do a background check. Her parents, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips, sued in civil court and lost because of Colorado's law and had to pay $260,000 in legal fees. They eventually filed for bankruptcy. Jaquez Lewis, during her comments on the bill, brought along pictures of a gun being marketed to children, which drew criticisms even from those who opposed the bill, who called the ad irresponsible. Jane Doherty, whose sister, a school psychologist, was murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary in 2012, said they obtained a $73 million judgment against Remington Arms, which filed bankruptcy as a result, but had to sue under the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act to get around the federal law. Had the family sued in Colorado, she said, they never would have been able to seek justice. Tom Mauser, whose son Daniel was murdered at Columbine, said he did not sue the parents of the two teens who killed his son in 1999. I'm actually leery of lawsuits against gun makers merely because their gun was used in a crime, he told the committee. But he said existing laws said, but he said the existing law says the gun industry can effectively do no wrong, nothing beyond a product defect. We are supposed to believe that no gun dealer recklessly makes a sale to a shady character or sells off something off the books and that no gun maker looks the other way, he said. You cannot tell me that this is an honorable industry above reproach that deserves immunity like no other industry. Let the courts decide whether the complaint is legitimate and who should pay the legal costs, he added. Witnesses opposed to the bill pointed out numerous times that nobody sues a car manufacturer when a drunken driver kills someone. Gun dealers pleaded with the committee not to put them out of business. Craig Williams, a gun store owner in Peyton, said he should not be sued for someone else's actions. For those of us who want to protect ourselves, this is all we ask, Williams said. Allow us to protect ourselves. Holding a gun dealer responsible for the actions of others is irresponsible, said Sheriff Royball, who has bought guns in Williams' store. I hope I'm wrong, Royball said, but 10, 15, 20 years from now, after gun regulation has taken firearms out of the hands of law-abiding citizens and armed criminals, we are going to arm criminals by doing this. David Koppel, the research director of the Independence Institute, but who testified on his behalf, said SB 168 will not create a level playing field. Instead, he said, it will create a special category of lawsuits only against the gun industry, including local mom-and-pop firearms businesses. He also questioned whether the attorney general would sue even when a victim doesn't want to. 
The bill, he said, is intended to put the firearms industry and dealers out of business through abuse litigation. Sullivan, whose son was among those killed in the Aurora mass shooting, and one witness got into a heated exchange when the legislator tried to ask how much profit a dealer would make on 4,000 rounds of ammunition, along with a graphic description of his son's injuries, as well as Gowie's. Other witnesses who support the bill responded to multiple claims by opponents that car manufacturers don't get sued. They are sued when the car is defective, they said. Former Senator Evie Hudak, who represents Colorado PTA, also testified in favor of all three bills. Hudak resigned her Senate seat in 2013, facing a recall over her votes on gun control bills passed in that session. Two other Democratic senators were were recalled by voters over those bills. The third bill, Senate Bill 169, which the committee is tackling at press time and is also expected to win approval on party-line vote, seeks to raise the legal age for purchasing a firearm from 18 to 21. It also bars those under 21 from possessing a firearm. The measure, sponsored by Senators Kyle Mullica, a Democrat from Thornton, and Jesse Danielson, a Democrat from Wheat Ridge, includes a handful of exceptions, such as for active duty military or law enforcement, individuals with hunting licenses, and those under the supervision of an immediate family member, age 25 or older. The bill provides no exception for wildlife management, such as for a person under the age of 21 working on a ranch who must defend a herd from predators, or for those who enlist in the military at 17 on a two-year term and are veterans but no longer active duty at 19. $7 million set to fight opioid addiction. Funds come from settlement with drug distributors by Brooke Nevins. A regional council Wednesday approved a two-year plan allocating nearly $7 million in opioid settlement money toward a handful of strategies with a heavy focus on youth mentoring and support to prevent and treat opioid use in El Paso and Teller counties. Roughly $6.5 million will be distributed over the next 18 months along six general strategies identified by the Region 16 Opioid Abatement Council, which is tasked with setting policy for the distribution of over $28.4 million that the Pikes Peak region is set to receive over the next 18 years, a portion of nearly $400 million the state expects to receive in the same time frame, according to a previous reporting by the Gazette. The funds are part of a $26 million national settlement involving Johnson & Johnson and three large drug distributors over claims their business practices helped feed the opioid crisis. Youth prevention, prevention measures include mentoring and resiliency training, was overwhelmingly identified by council members as a top priority for funding, 
and is set to receive $2.5 million. Programs supporting recovery and transition efforts, including peer groups, crisis intervention teams, and navigators, experts helping individuals and families navigate criminal justice and behavioral health systems, will get $2 million. Another $1 million will go towards community awareness and education, while nearly 513000 was allocated for opioid medication and treatment, including rural, uh, excuse me, mobile units for rural areas. A final strategy, victim advocacy, is set to receive over $487,000 and intends to aid those victims' families who, because of the nature of an overdose, might not qualify for pre-existing crime victims' rights compensation. The effort was largely supported by community members who have lost loved ones to opioid use. It's just so disorienting when it happens to you. We didn't know where to go, said Matt Riviere, whose sons, Andrew, 21, and Stephen, 19, died last year after ingesting fentanyl-laced pills they thought were oxycontin. Expanding the definition of a victim would ease the burden to clean hazardous material of people who didn't have some say in what happened to a family member, said District Attorney Michael Allen, who chaired the meeting. Truett Schofield, whose 18-year-old son, Truett T.J. Schofield Jr., died of a heroin overdose about two years ago, praised the council for focusing on prevention measures as a long-term solution to the opioid crisis, which has seen fentanyl-related deaths in El Paso County double for each of the past five years. El Paso County Coroner Leon Kelly previously told the Gazette, Prevention is the unsung hero, Schofield said. Prevention keeps people from drug use to even begin with. So it's a tougher sell because the outcome is invisible. Members of the council, including representatives from El Paso and Teller counties, as well as Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, Fountain, Monument, Woodland Park, Cripple Creek, Victor, and the 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office, created a list of over a dozen priorities and then ranked them using a point system to identify the top six areas to receive funding. Other counties have done this a little differently, where they gave 30 organizations $10,000 or $20,000, said J.K. Costello, Director of Behavioral Health Consulting with the Stedman Group, a company assisting the council in fund management. If you want to see a different, you've got to put real money into something, especially a big county like this. Most of the opioid settlement money, 60%, was distributed across 19 regions in the state, with another 20% designated to local governments based on a set formula. 10% will go directly to the state, and another 10% will be distributed statewide for specific abatement infrastructure projects in Colorado regions hit particularly hard by the epidemic. 
El Paso County is the fiscal agent responsible for receiving the funds from the state and reporting the region's annual expenditures. The $6.5 million is the first allocation of the front-loaded funding, with larger amounts distributed early on and waning over the final 10 years to establish infrastructure and programs initially and then continue funding them over time. The Council's next step in the funding process will be to set up requests for proposals so that organizations relevant to each of the six funding areas can bid to provide services in the Pikes Peak region. Controversial Kids Survey Could See Change in D11 Schools by Debbie Kelly. The controversial Healthy Kids Colorado Survey could see even less participation among El Paso County Public School students if Colorado Springs School District 11's Board of Education approves a proposal that would change its parental consent model. Some people think that would be a shame and decrease what they believe is valuable information from students, they said during Wednesday night's board meeting. Others said they believe it's appropriate since third-party surveys students take in school are too intrusive and constitute an invasion of privacy. The seven-member board is considering moving from passive consent to active consent for surveys, analysis, and evaluations that are administered to students in the school day. The policy change means parents would have to give written consent for their child to opt in instead of giving written consent for their child to opt out of the questionnaires that ask about students' personal thoughts, feelings, experiences, and behaviors. In the D11, the region's largest, third largest school district, unless parents give permission for their child to opt out, the child automatically is administered the forms and solicited feedback. In 2021, about 98% of participating school districts in the Healthy Kids Colorado survey chose passive consent procedures, meaning parents and guardians had to opt their children out of taking the survey by returning to school a signed form denying permission, said Vanessa Bernal, bilingual media specialist for the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. The Healthy Kids Colorado Survey, administered statewide in the fall of odd years, contains more than 100 questions for middle and high school students regarding a host of topics, including their sexual behavior, drug and alcohol use, thoughts of self-harm and suicide, eating and sleeping habits, bullying, access to guns at home, and other personal lifestyle and health information that some parents think goes too far. Any survey done on my child needs to be approved by me, parent Jennifer Bertram told the board during the public, during the public comment portion of the meeting. She favors requiring parents to opt in to have their kids take the Healthy Kids Colorado survey rather than opt out. Bertram said she finds the question insulting after she read some of them aloud, including asking children if they carried a weapon, 
how easy it would be for them to do that, how often did a parent swear at them or put them down or kick, hit, or physically hurt them in any way. It has absolutely nothing to do with how my child is doing in school, she said. That's what this survey is about, an agenda. Students deserve their needs be known by adults, said Rhonda Heschel, a pediatric nurse practitioner and parent of a Coronado High School student. It's a needs assessment, she said to board members. The entire purpose of the assessment is to determine what students' needs are, and as a healthcare provider, the survey helps inform my practice. The Healthy Kids Colorado survey is billed as confidential and anonymous. It's administered by the Colorado School of Public Health at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. In the 2021 go-around, El Paso County was one of six regions in the state that did not have enough student participation to provide statistically significant data, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment reported. It was the second time low participation among the county's 15 public school districts led to results not being released. The first was in 2015. Public health officials say low participation is unfortunate because the data is useful in tracking behaviors, health indicators, and trends. Agencies also use the information to obtain funding for programs to address identified problems, such as smoking or vaping. El Paso County Coroner Dr. Leon Kelly is among those who oppose modifying the D-11 policy. Due to smartphones, social media, and decreasing human connectedness, this generation is growing up in a world unlike any that preceded it, Kelly wrote in a letter he sent to the D-11 Superintendent and Board of Education Wednesday. Our only hope is to offer help to understand what they are going through and what they need, he said, adding that's what the Healthy Kids Colorado survey does. Other surveys mentioned in the tentative policy revisions are five essentials and panorama education, the latter of which is for elementary through high school students and is not anonymous. According to the proposal, the new model would apply to surveys, analyses, and evaluations that ask students about political or religious affiliations, mental and psychological problems potentially embarrassing to the student or his family, sex behavior on attitudes or topics that infringe on student privacy, illegal, antisocial, self-incriminating and demeaning behavior, critical appraisals of other individuals with whom respondents have a close family relationship, legally recognized, privileged, and analogous relationships such as those of lawyers, physicians, and ministers, income other than that required by law to determine eligibility for participation in a program, or for receiving financial assistance under such programs. El Paso County was one of 13 counties to have results of the 2021 Healthy Kids Colorado survey suppressed, with results from 51 counties made public. 
statewide findings from 2021 show students continue to have feelings of depression, anxiety, and stress from the COVID-19 pandemic. Substance use decreased among teens because of their inability to access substances during the pandemic. The D11 board likely will vote on the item at its March 22nd meeting. Business, military, politicians urge Biden not to move Space Command by Hannah Metzger. With the final location of the U.S. Space Command still undecided after more than two years of debate, dozens of Colorado leaders renewed their plea for the headquarters to remain in the state. In a letter to President Joe Biden on Wednesday, 94 local politicians, business leaders, and military personnel argued that the command should stay in its provisional home in Colorado Springs. Those who signed the letter include Governor Jared Polis, both of the state's U.S. Senators, seven of the state's eight U.S. Representatives, all leadership members of the legislature, and Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. Colorado is the best and only home for U.S. Space Command, the letter read. Two years later, U.S. Spacecom has continued to prove its ability to ensure our national security in the space domain from Peterson Space Force Base. This latest move follows years of heated discussion and debate that began in January 2021 when the Trump administration made the surprise announcement that the headquarters would be moved from Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama. Military leaders had recommended that the command remain in Colorado Springs, leading critics on both sides of the aisle to argue that the decision was more political than strategic, an outgoing president's last-ditch effort to reward a state that supported him and to punish a state that didn't vote for him. Donald Trump said the decision to move Space Command to Alabama was his alone. Last year, two federal watchdog investigations from the Government Accountability Office and the Pentagon's Office of Inspector General found Trump's decision to be fundamentally flawed, but stopped short of re recommending that it be reversed. The reports identified Colorado Springs as the preferred location based on the best military judgment of our nation's most senior national space security leaders, the letter read. In fact, the U.S. Spacecom commander expected Colorado Springs to achieve full operational capacity approximately four to six years sooner than other candidates. The letter pointed to Colorado's status as a hub for the aerospace industry and the existing infrastructure already in place in Colorado Springs as making the state the best option for the Space Command headquarters. A 2021 paper drafted by Air Force General Ed Eberhardt and retired Army Lieutenant General Ed Anderson found that allowing Space Command to remain in Colorado Springs would save taxpayers $1.24 billion. The letter further, 
further argued that the cost-prohibitive and time-consuming process of moving the headquarters to Alabama could leave the U.S. vulnerable to Russian aggression or allow China to narrow the gap in the space race. We face an immediate and existential threat in the space domain, the letter read. We cannot allow a flawed and costly political decision to threaten our national security and military readiness. This is the latest of several attempts Colorado leaders have made fighting for the Space Command. In December 2020, more than 600 Colorado leaders sent a letter to Trump asking him to keep the headquarters in Colorado. Similar letters were later sent to U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in February 2021 and Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall in September 2022. More than three months ago, General James Dickinson, commander of the U.S. Space Command, told Military.com the final determination would be coming shortly. LGBTQ plus center to open with improved security. Inside Out Youth Services has been closed since November by Debbie Kelly. The community center at Inside Out Youth Services, a nonprofit organization catering to LGBTQ plus youths and young adults, was closed for the Thanksgiving break when on November 19th, a shooter killed five people inside a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs and injured 22 patrons and employees. The youth center hasn't reopened since. Immediately, there was concern that the mass shooting could spawn copycat actions and the center would be targeted, said Liz Smith, spokesperson for Inside Out. Colorado Springs Police, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security reached out to the organization to help thwart potential intrusion, she said. While the organization received an outpouring of support from around the nation and countries such as New Zealand and England, Smith said negative online comments from anti-LGBTQ plus groups began appearing on social media. Threats got so bad that Inside Out had to delete its Twitter account, Smith said, because we could not keep up with the hateful messages and harassment. The threats did not warrant police intervention, according to Colorado Springs Police Lieutenant Pam Castro. Police recorded no calls for service to the Inside Out address east of downtown in the past year, she said. Inside Out has been holding virtual programs and off-site weekly in-person get-togethers, such as at libraries or other organizations like Food to Power. The organization serves between 100 and 200 youths in a quarter, Smith said, and has provided 190 free therapy sessions since November. A lot of our young folks don't really have a safe space at home or school, she said. Inside Out is one of the few places they truly feel they can be themselves without judgment. It's life-saving to have that collective community to be connected to. Office renovations by volunteers from Lowe's Home Improvement Store to improve security and make the area more fun are nearly complete, Smith said. 
Additional safety training for staff and up to 70 volunteers is also being conducted, she said. The community center will reopen this month in phases, Smith said, at first for three days a week and working up to five days, Monday through Friday, its typical schedule. The organization has had security practices in place for years, she said, including a double-door locked entrance. Also, only vetted adults have been able to volunteer with the goal of creating a secure and confidential safe space where teens and young adults ages 13 to 24 can congregate. Unfortunately, it hasn't been enough for this new movement, Smith said. Experts in anti-LGBTQ plus extremism and cybersecurity and physical safety practices have advised the group on how to move forward, with safety being top of mind, she said. The organization has contracted with a security company to provide on-site workers, the address being removed from online sites, along with employees' names. We're re-upping the vetting, taking volunteers only by referral and not having applications online, Smith said. Adult volunteers can still contact the organization via email, social media, or its website, she said, as clients need trusted adults and intergenerational connectedness they might not get elsewhere. We're not going to rush it. We know how important it is to do it right, Smith said. Nearly three months after the Club Q shooting, the local LGBTQ plus community is still in mourning. She said, people don't know what it feels like to be targeted in that way and to lose people we knew and loved, Smith said. That's the history of the LGBTQ community, grieving, coming together, being resilient. There's sadness, anger, fear, and overall a sense we have to come together, a sense we'll change things, we'll turn hate into love. Residents Can Help Name New Senior Center by Brianna Gent. Colorado Springs residents are getting the chance to help name the new senior center. The city on Wednesday launched an online survey where residents can cast their vote among four possible names for the new facility, which will be getting a new home as the city prepares to replace the approximately 50-year-old building on North Hancock Avenue. Many communities have renamed their senior centers to more accurately reflect the current lifestyle of residents in this age demographic, as well as the programmatic offerings, Ryan Trujillo, the city's deputy chief of staff, said in a news release. Through March 24th, residents can cast their votes online at the project webpage at Colorado Springs gov backslash senior center renovation. Click on the red take the survey link on the left hand side. The project team will consider public feedback before determining a final name, the release said. Residents can choose among four name options. Colorado Springs Senior Center, Center for Active Seniors, the Encore, or the Hub at Hancock. Residents may also write in suggested names for the new building. 
The city is using $8 million in American Rescue Act funds to re excuse me, to build the new facility. Officials say it will be safer, bigger, and more accommodating to seniors. Officials expect construction of the new senior center to begin in August. It will be built on North Hancock Avenue and East Camarillo Streets, east of the existing building that will be demolished. Construction could last 18 to 24 months, according to the project webpage. The YMCA operates the center, offering exercise and health classes, art classes, social clubs, and continuing education for seniors. The YMCA is finalizing a plan to continue offering these services at alternate locations until the new senior center opens, the project website states. Academy Cadet Dies in Off-Campus Incident by Abby Sukup. The death of an Air Force Academy cadet is under investigation after an incident in Park County, according to a news release Wednesday from the Academy. The release said the Academy learned late Monday that 22-year-old cadet first class Cole Kilty died in an off-campus incident. Kilty was from Elk Grove Village, Illinois, and a member of the class of 2023. He was to be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force after graduation this spring. Kilty planned to enter an undergraduate pilot training this year, the release said. Today we mourn the loss of a cherished member of our cadet wing, said Lieutenant General Richard Clark, Air Force Academy superintendent. Cole was known for being a friend to others, for his jokes and his unique ability to find humor in any situation, from everyday life to a tough training event. I extend my personal condolences to his family, his squadron, and his friends. According to officials, agents from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations and the Park County Coroner's Office are working to determine the cause of death. This is the second death of a cadet at the Academy this school year. Air Force sophomore cadet Hunter Brown died in January of a blood clot in his lungs, the result of clotting that developed in his legs after an injury suffered in a football practice. Man pleads guilty to possession of firearms explosive devices by Zachary DuPont. A Colorado Springs man could spend up to three years in prison after pleading guilty in federal court this week to illegal possession of firearms and explosives, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. In May, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives was notified that Dakota Ryan Haley, 28, and co-defendant Dalton Turner were in possession of two hand grenades, according to a news release. Undercover ATF agents arranged a meeting with Haley on uh, May 12th, and they brought a grenade and a shotgun from the defendants, the release states. The second purchase was arranged two weeks later, where an ATF agent purchased six grenades from the defendants. Authorities arrested Haley and Turner on June 8th 
and executed a federal search warrant on their apartment. During the search, ATF found 32 explosive devices, numerous firearms, and more than 4,000 rounds of ammunition, according to the release. None of the weapons or explosive devices had been registered with the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Record, according to the release. Halley pleaded guilty Monday to possession of unregistered firearms. Court records show that Turner pleaded guilty to the same charge on January 26th. The plea agreement recommends a sentencing range of 30 to 37 months in prison and a fine between $15,000 and $150,000. Court records show that Turner's recommended sentence as part of his plea agreement is the same as Halley's. Halley is scheduled to be sentenced May 30th, while Turner is expected to be sentenced April 19th. Stotch will make final appearance in court Thursday before jury trial by Zachary DuPont. A hearing Thursday is expected to be Letitia Stotch's final court appearance before the start of her trial this month. Stotch, 39, is accused of killing her 11-year-old stepson, Gannon, in January 2020. Attorneys at the hearing will be asked by Judge Gregory Werner to declare they are ready for trial, and if prosecution and defense agree, Stotch's trial will go ahead as scheduled. Jury selection is scheduled to begin March 20th, and opening statements are expected to begin no earlier than April 3rd, even if jury selection is completed before that date. Fourth Judicial District Attorney Michael Allen has said he anticipates Stotch's trial to last six weeks. Werner said during Stotch's last appearance in court in early February that the jury selection process might take up to 14 days because of the likelihood of many potential jurors being unable to be present for all six weeks of the trial. Stotch faces 13 charges, including first-degree murder, child abuse, and tampering with evidence. At Stotch's most recent court date, her attorneys said her second mental health evaluation had been completed, but defense attorney Josh Tolini declined to discuss the findings of the evaluation. The first mental health evaluation conducted by the psychiatric hospital in Pueblo found Stotch to be sane, Werner said at a hearing in August. In addition to the first-degree murder case, Stotch also faces a second case in which she is accused of attempting to escape from El Paso County Jail in May 2020. Stotch was arrested in South Carolina in March 2020 and has been in jail since then. She faces life in prison if convicted of first-degree murder. Mom Might Get Deal in Fentanyl Death by Zachary DuPont Attorneys representing the Fountain Woman, accused of allowing her four-year-old daughter to ingest fentanyl and die, are discussing a potential plea deal, but must come to a resolution within five weeks, according to El Paso County Judge. Emma Stanton, 25, was expected to enter a plea 
Wednesday, but both the prosecution and defense requested a 30-day continuance to allow for more time to negotiate a plea deal. Staten faces three charges, the most serious of which is child abuse, knowingly or recklessly causing death. In the death of her daughter, Aislinn Stanton Contreras, who fatally overdosed on fentanyl in July. Prosecuting attorney Rachel Powell told Judge Chad Miller that the prosecution and defense had only been able to meet for the first time last week to discuss a plea deal, and that prosecutors haven't had adequate time to have a conversation with the victim's family regarding a plea deal. Staten's defense attorney, David Lipka, did not object to the request for a continuance, saying it was essentially a joint request from both parties. Miller moved Staten's next court date to April 12th and said if a plea deal isn't reached by then, Staten will be required to plead not guilty and a trial date will be set. Staten's case was bound over for trial by Miller at a preliminary hearing in October after the prosecution presented testimony showing that there was sufficient evidence to continue pursuing charges against Staten. After that hearing, Miller lowered Staten's bond from $500,000 to $150,000 despite significant objections from some attending the hearing. This is expletive, one woman could be heard yelling before she was removed from the virtual courtroom. She deserves to be behind bars, another woman said. Staten is out of custody after posting bond in November, according to court records. The trial for Joanny Manuel Astacio Ottenwalder, 36, and Kira Lee Davison, 29, the Colorado Springs couple accused of allowing their 15-month-old child, Cairo Estacio, to die of fentanyl investigation in 2021, began Monday after the first trial was declared a mistrial last month. USA Basketball Holds Hoops Clinic at Otero Elementary by Odell Isaac. Hundreds of students from kindergarten through fifth grade received a rare treat during their physical education classes on Wednesday when a contingent of coaches from USA Basketball held a skills clinic at Otero Elementary in Southeast Colorado Springs. The all-day event, held for the entire school, featured 45-minute gym sessions that consisted of basic instruction, warm-ups, and drill stations where students of all skill levels learned the fundamentals of dribbling, passing, defensive footwork, and shooting. In all gym classes, the primary goal was to get kids moving. But USA Basketball also has a broader objective in mind, said Chief Development Officer Jennifer Williams. Not everyone is going to be able to be an Olympian, but we can all learn to go for the gold in life, said Williams, a former basketball captain for the University of North Carolina. Basketball teaches life skills like teamwork, sportsmanship, fair play that these kids can take with them wherever they go. The clinic was part of a strategic plan spearheaded by Harrison School District 2 Superintendent Wendy Bernhausel, 
that gives that aims to give Harrison kids some of the same opportunities that their more affluent peers have, said district spokeswoman Christine O'Brien. Dr. Burhazel knew the plan was critical as we were learning to live in a pandemic where families had often been isolated and impacted financially by the pandemic and the rising cost of living in Colorado Springs, O'Brien said. With this in mind, Burhansel worked with District 2 Foundation Executive Director Randy Rocha to develop a K-8 basketball league last fall. Each school has a co-ed team that played Saturday mornings, and the community feedback was overwhelmingly positive, O'Brien said. Families are asking for more opportunities like this for their children to be able to learn and play a sport, she said. Creating a gym environment where kids could put their hands on a basketball was part of a larger effort, officials said. On Wednesday, each Otero student was given a USA Basketball t-shirt to wear and keep as they walked into the gym. After introductions, the clinicians went right to work, warming the kids up without basketballs before rotating them through dribbling, layup, passing, and defense stations. Familiarity with the game varied from student to student, but the coaches were careful to meet the kids where they were, regardless of their skill level. Of course, the clinic gets them moving, and it's a positive experience with some new adults to cheer them on, Coach Jenny Johnston said. For USA Basketball's purpose, it exposes basketball to kids who might not have played it or didn't have a positive experience with it, and it's a really low-stakes way to enjoy the game. The primary objective of the clinics was for the students to enjoy the game without pressure or stress, officials said. It's not a tryout or a competition, which we know can be stressful, said Johnson, who has been with USA Basketball since 2006. We want the kids to have fun playing basketball, and I think that's the right order. Fun, then basketball. At the end of each session, the students gathered at the center of the court for a giant huddle with the coaches and belted out a chant, one, two, three, USA. In the end, it's about kids having a great time and learning a few things, whether they're conscious of the learning or not, Williams said. That's why we love these clinics and why we're hoping to do a lot more. Thank you for joining us for the Gazette. My name is Mary Ann. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day. Today we would like to highlight the American Foundation for the Blind. This resource prides itself on mobilizing leaders, advancing understanding of visual impairments and blindness, and advocating for impactful policies. Learn more by visiting afb.org or calling 212-502-7600 or email 
info at afb.net. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado.